Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So last week, uh, after service here, our birthday girl, Arden, chose where we would have lunch, and she chose Aspen Tap, which is one of those restaurants that hangs televisions around the joint uh, with as much restraint as grandma hanging Christmas decorations. I mean, they're everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are screens, and I suspect that's what prompted Allison to ask, what do you think is the worst long-running ad campaign? Well, basically my answer was every ad campaign growing up. I mean, Limu Emu is Orson Welles compared to the parade of morons featured <laughs> during commercial breaks when I grew up. Uh, in the late 70s, early, you know, the 70s and 80s. I mean, you got you have people walking around eating uh, tubs of peanut butter, bonking into people eating candy bars. You got your chocolate, my peanut butter. You got a peanut butter, my chocolate. Or you'd have manicurists who would who would uh, place their pl- clients' hands in a bowl of dish soap as though it were moisturizer. Another favorite, the one where you have somebody some, a headshot of somebody standing there with this head, side of their head full of shampoo and this side of their head shampoo, and they're going this one. It tingles. Tells me it's working. <laughs> what? Why don't you try dressing your dandruff with battery acid? I bet you that tingles. Anyway, I could go on. But I think the reason that, that commercials during that era were so terrible is that uh, I think advertisers thought they'd sort of crack the code. I mean, their job was not to entertain, was not to cre- create quality work. It was to drill a message into our head. It didn't matter how stupid. As long as we remembered it, we would buy their stuff. And of course, the best way to get us to remember their product was to have a jingle. Um, that era didn't invent the jingle, but that it perfected it. I understand that it was the height of jingles, uh, the 80s. Uh, in fact, there was a time when there's a short period of time when the most requested song on the radio was Be a Pepper. Uh, you know, I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a prepper. 
to be a pep or two. Right, yeah, see, you remembered it. It's late 70s, folks, uh, and it's still all there. Elka-Seltzer. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, a relief fizz. All right, here we go, one more. The best part of waking up, vultures in your cup, is crazy. Those haven't been aired in decades, and it's all right there. Like, I don't remember where I put my glasses half the time, but a tagline from a commercial I saw when I was eight. Oh, that's right. I, I won't for, I'll forget my mother's name before I forget that. In fact, we should, I should introduce my mom with a jingle. She's proof my dad's not sterile. She's my mom, and her name's Carol. <laughs> Ah, you're never going to forget her name now, are you? But, but, but by the, the 90s, people were starting to get wise to the code. Ads that followed the formula were, became sort of objects of ridicule. And it was, you know, it was at that point, advertisers were like, okay, we give up. Told, you know, producers of goods and services, you know, save your money, just make quality product. No, no, that's when spending went through the roof because now you gotta have more sophisticated commercials. You gotta have high production values. Anyway, now you may be wondering, where am I going with this? Or maybe at this point you stop asking yourself that. You're like, well, another weird rant about pop culture. Must be Sunday. <laughs> uh, but, there, or maybe you did make the connection because this is a passage in which Jesus talks about Stuff we own, possessions, our treasures, what, what to do with them, where to store them. Uh, and it's a topic Jesus has launched into uh, as a result of this conversation he has with someone in the crowd. You know, there's someone in the crowd who says, hey, I've got this family squabble over an inheritance. You've got to help me resolve it. And Jesus is like, nope, I'm going to just tell you a story. And he tells a story about a man who, after hauling in a bumper crop, hatches a plan to upgrade his storage facilities and then just live it up. Now, this man in the story, I mean, he is like the target audience of every advertisement. Um, not only has he found himself with a good deal of discretionary income, he's got the perfect mentality for it. He, he looks at his wealth and he sees it as a ticket to pleasure and security. You know, when you think about it, I, how many, how many ads have we been exposed to over our lifetimes? I mean, from TV commercials to billboards to web banners to banners dragged behind airplanes. I mean, thousands, tens of thousands. And whether they're hawking prescription meds or used cars or brokerage services, each and every one was trying to nurture that kind of a mindset in you, mindset of this, the rich fool. They all wanted you to think the same way he did, all designed to turn us into consumers, beings that consume, right? That find security and happiness in the consumption of goods and services. It's a message behind everyone. Every jingle that's ever seeped into your memory banks plays those notes. Consume, consume, consume. Consume your way to security and pleasure. You know, if Jesus had corporate sponsors, if he funded his ministry by doing endorsement deals, 
They might have wanted a word with him after this story. You know, they might have said, hey, heard that story about the man with the good harvest? Loved it, loved it. Boy, so compelling. You really painted a picture there. But I thought we could talk about the ending. You know, uh, the marketing team, we ran, we ran this story by some focus groups. They loved it, they loved it. But we offered some alternative endings. Uh, and one of those alternative endings proved very popular. Um, let me try it out on you. So after he makes his plans to build the bigger barns, to eat, drink, and be merry, so good. Uh, at that point, you say, and he lived happily ever after. Yeah, no, don't like that? Well, I, all right, I get it. I, we cut God out of the story, so uh, let's see. About, and he lived happily ever after. Amen. You know, that sort of brings a little God into it, right? Gives a little gravitas. You know, the story begins as a consumer culture fairy tale, a dream come true. But in Jesus' telling, it's a tragedy. It's a nightmare scenario. The night he hatches his plan for financial security and personal happiness is the night he kicks the bucket. And all that abundance is wasted. And then Jesus says, his problem was he wasn't rich toward God. And what's that mean? To be rich toward God. Well, uh, Jesus gives us an example of at least what rich toward God looks like in the verses that follow. There's one, they, we skipped those. They, they weren't assigned. But you're prob- you may be familiar with them. That's the one where Jesus says, hey, check out those birds. Check out those flowers over there. Notice how God provides for them. Look at how beautiful they are. You know what? They don't pull that off by freaking out about what's going to happen tomorrow. They do all that without working themselves to death, about worrying about what tomorrow will bring. They, they, they simply live because they know that God provides. This then leads into our reading and that opening verse where Jesus says, don't be, be afraid, little flock. Uh, God provides. So to be rich in God is to be centered in, in that, to be, to be, to, in that trust, to know that, uh, to have a wealth of trust in God's provision. Now, truthfully, it can be difficult to distinguish richness toward God and just riches. Um, because it's easy to say, oh, I am not afraid. I'm kind of like those birds and flowers. I trust God. I'm, I realize all my possessions are from the gracious hand of providence. You know, sometimes when somebody says, I am so blessed, they're really saying, I am so rich, right? That's a way, it's sort of a sanctified way of saying that you're rich. And it's as if Jesus anticipates that thought. Because the next thing he says is, Sell your stuff. Give it away. Essentially, trust that God will provide by giving away the stuff God's provided. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think part of what's going on here is that there's a little bit of hint. It's hinted at in that story. Uh, I, and I hinted at it last week, but it's worth highlighting here. The, the problem with the landowner is not that he's rich. So he viewed his windfall solely in terms of how it benefited him. 
Um, it's all about what he can do for himself. I mean, it's kind of great. He has one conversation in the story, and who's it with? It's with himself, but it gets better. He has a conversation with himself about a future conversation he plans to have with himself, right? He says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, but don't tell him I'm going to have that conversation. I want it to be a surprise. That, of course, is when God interrupts the meeting of club self to remind him that, look, your life was given to you. Now it's being taken. It was never yours. And God asks afterwards, things that you've prepared, whose will they be? I mean, the very things he thought he could hoard for himself will benefit someone he never considered. You know, Jesus summarizes the law by saying that we are called to love God with our whole heart, whole mind, and all our strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think typically we see those as two commands. But really, they're more like one. After all, what is left to love your neighbor with if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, uh, heart, soul, mind, and strength? And, uh, and love your neighbor with your spleen, uh, with your pet hamster, right? No, to love God, to trust God fearlessly, it translates into love for others. That's just how it gets expressed. Because you know the goodness of God, you spread that goodness around. So that's what Jesus is getting at in his command to sell your stuff. Uh, or give it away and give away your money. It's an invitation to turn fearless trust into action. Love for God generates love for others. Riches in God is measured not by what you have, by what, but by what you give away. Now, we move into this parable about these uh, slaves and the master returning home, and, and, and it sounds like Jesus is moving on to a different topic. Uh, in fact, these verses are often used as warnings uh, to be on the lookout for Jesus' return. Some of you may recall a truly, truly terrible movie in the, in the 70s called Thief in the Night. It's all about the rapture coming, and um, it included that Larry Norman song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Um, in my own, uh, my former denomination, they, they used to have real concerns about what they called worldly amusements. And so, you know, my grandparents' generation in particular, they would often say, when, uh, if they wanted to go to a movie, they'd be told, would you want to be caught in the devil's house when the Lord returns? So apparently the devil lived <laughs> at a movie theater. Uh, so, I mean, that's the idea, is that oh, you don't want to be caught doing something bad when Jesus returns. Jen says this to me all the time, by the way. Oh, is that what you want to do when Jesus returns? Come on, Jen. I don't know. There's so many things that prompt that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, that emphasis really sort of disconnects these parables from the context. Because what's the point of this whole section here is we've got to build trust in God. 
not to keep us on edge that we're going to get caught. So first of all, it presents us with these servants or slaves in a master's house. If we want to be rich in God, we have to have that sort of perspective on the stuff that we have. We need to, we need to everything that we identify as ours, it's not really ours. And, and here we're talking not just about our possessions, but our time, our talents, whatever. We can't hold too tightly to them because none of it's ours. We are caretakers in God's house. Um, you know, servants may have specific responsibilities, specific skills, and whatever, but the, the point of them is always to use it for the common good, for the thriving of the, 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 the master's estate. You know, again, you understand yourself as a part of that larger ecosystem. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this par- parable is that Jesus seems to acknowledge it is tough to keep that kind of perspective. Right? Um, in the parable, it's, it's tough to keep that perspective because the master is gone. They're, we're waiting for his return. And without the master around, it gets easy to forget that none of this is ours, that it's all a gift, that it's all given to us to be used for the thriving of the ecosystem. It's, instead, it's easy to start clinging to it, clinging tighter and tighter to it. When the master's not there, it's easy to start having those conversations with yourself, to hatch plans with your soul. You know, the, the jingles start to uh, dictate your thinking. The best part of waking up isn't that you've been given another day to live. It's an opportunity to consume some folders. Jesus recognizes that that is a tough mentality to have, and the parable speaks to that. But it does more, too. It's also a parable that underscores exactly why we don't just give in to the voices, why we don't allow the jingles to dictate our thinking. And it, it can be hard to sort of see how he's doing this because, first of all, uh, as Americans, our associations with slavery are, you know, the, what was pre-Civil War South. Um, and so any, I mean, you'll notice that our translation said men. Well, the word is, is slaves because we, we don't want to talk about slavery because that was, makes us pretty uneasy because it was a horrible thing. But... In that day, this is just like basic social order. Um, it's, it's like employee, employer, it's management, worker. Um, so it's, Jesus is providing a very familiar sort of image of the, that day. But he also does something rather scandalous with that image. Uh, for his first century audience, this story takes a shocking turn. You know, because in that day, it's all about living within, in, in, I mean, uh, honorable, I think I've talked about this before, an honorable life is one lived within that order that you, uh, that you do, you're kind to those above, you do honor to those below. I mean, that is what's central to your identity. But notice what happens when the master returns to the faithful slaves. He doesn't merely reward them. It says he, uh, he hitches up his garments and serves them. 
a parable that begins on relying on that social order suddenly blows it up. Again, Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You can trust God. You can trust God to provide, not simply because God's able to provide, not simply because God's willing to provide, but because God delights in it. It's what God loves to do. God is more committed to providing, to giving life, to your good, then, then God is about protecting God's own status. God, more than God's concerned in making sure you know he's boss. God loves giving life. Now that would seem a crazy thing for someone to say, unless you're Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't say it because it sounds nice. Jesus says it because he's gonna prove it with his own life. That is what it means to be rich in God. It's to be generous. Not because you have to, but because you discovered the secret. The very thing that God delights to do, you, you also delight in it. God's source of joy is your source of joy. You are rich with it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.